The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Supreme Court, I think, is very unlikely to be comfortable with this is something that, you know, effectively, at some level, is not only an extraordinary restriction on government speech and on individual speech, but also runs some real risk of crippling the administrative state. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for July 12th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. On July 4th, a federal judge in Louisiana issued one of the most dramatic First Amendment rulings in recent memory. The case involves a variety of individuals, organizations, and conservative state governments who accuse the Biden administration of unconstitutional jawboning, that is, informally pressuring social media companies to censor speech, especially about controversial topics like COVID vaccines and election integrity. Describing the allegations as the most massive attack against free speech in United States history, Judge Terry Doughty enjoined, by name, dozens of high-level Biden administration officials and potentially thousands more unnamed government employees from communicating with social media companies about taking down First Amendment-protected user content. If the opinion stands, it will have a dramatic effect on the ability of the government to communicate with platforms, a practice that administrations of both parties have engaged in for years. Earlier this week, Judge Doughty rejected a motion from the government to stay the injunction pending appeal. The government has since asked the Fifth Circuit to do so instead, and, in a sign of how seriously it's taking the ruling, has signaled that it may ask the Supreme Court to step in if the Fifth Circuit doesn't. To work through the implications of this decision, I spoke to two of the leading experts on the government's relationship with social media platforms. Derek Bambauer is the Irving Sipen Professor of Law at the University of Florida, and he's the author of an influential law review article on jawboning in the context of internet speech. Jeff Kosov is an associate professor of cybersecurity law at the United States Naval Academy, a law for contributing editor, and the author of numerous books and articles about online speech issues. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 12th, a Louisiana judge's dramatic jawboning decision. I'd like to start this conversation by just getting your general impressions on the opinion. Uh, let me start with you, Derek, especially since uh, a few years ago, you wrote a fabulous piece on the issue of jawboning generally. So I think you're coming into this having sort of some some good theoretical uh, thoughts about uh, how this all works or does not. Um, thanks. I love the piece. Um, I'm sad at some level to see the issue kind of reemerge in, in a perhaps an even more virulent way. Um, and this is also just a nice chance for me to thank the people at Minnesota Law Review who did a, a fantastic job with it and have always been really supportive of the work. What I was thinking about was the increasing pressures on speech intermediaries, in particular by government officials. I tend to study state-based censorship of um, private speakers and, and in particular uh, various forms of intermediaries. And I was particularly curious about the use of informal pressures where those pressures are not definitely outside the scope of the of regulator's authority, but sometimes quite close to it. And so uh, it turns out to be surprisingly difficult to actually challenge that sort of, of um, informal pressure, because usually it doesn't result in something like it did here with some sort of formal legal action. And so in, in some ways, this is uh, both a nice uh, test of jawboning as an issue it's also one where I can say that, in my opinion, after having read the case and the media coverage of it, I can say that everyone involved looks terrible, frankly. I thought that the way that the administration handled the interactions with the platforms 
you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the difficulty of some of the issues, including obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, but it was uh, extraordinarily peremptory. It was almost all behind closed doors. It involved uh, everywhere, everything from sort of just sort of moral suasion to threats to reconsider Section 230 to threats of antitrust enforcement, which look pretty real these days, given the way that the FTC has started to look at intermediaries. By the same token, it strikes me that this is a, a highly opportunistic move by the plaintiffs who are not aggrieved about platforms in general, but who are aggrieved about the removal of content that they agree with, even if that content was not only false at times, but actually did have some potential to cause at minimum mischief and perhaps harm. And then the the opinion is remarkable for the ratio of uh, length to content. It's 155 pages long, and there's not a single thought in it. Um, it's it's uh, appallingly bad. It, it sort of jumps right past some of the important law nerd questions like standing. And it never really engages in any way with the substantive legal analysis, which is the, the sort of core problem is the government gets to speak to. And jawboning to me is where the government is attempting to deploy force, especially force that's outside its legal authority. But if the government doesn't like uh, media outlets' coverage of things, that's almost as old as time, you know, from complaining about newspapers to complaining about Walter Cronkite's coverage of the Vietnam War, uh, et cetera. It is a hardy perennial of presidential administrations. And I don't think anyone has ever believed previously that this would be actionable, and not only so actionable, but that you could issue a prior restraint against it, and you could also forbid the government from speaking with certain you know, entities who weren't even part of the lawsuit. So uh, even though this is you know likely to be a f- uh, appealed, and we normally don't think of the, the Fifth Circuit as being um, an entirely sensible bunch, I see no way that this case can possibly stand up on appeal. And it's it's just, it's, it's a terrible example of judge shopping. And it's also a terrible example of getting the sort of results you want and then working backwards to something that might be sort of legal reasoning. Yeah, I, I want to follow up with, with one point you just made. And that is, as you very, um, I think, honestly, politely uh, put it, the uh, remarkably low ratio of content to length. Relatedly, I want to ask your opinion about how how you perceive the tone of this opinion, and I'll I'll just put out you know my my cards on the on the table, which is I found it unbelievably off putting. Um, And again, I say this as someone who does not like have a super strong bone to pick on this debate. I think it's an interesting one, but. To me, whenever you start with a quote from Voltaire and then uh, a bunch of excerpts, you know, explaining to the reader why the founding fathers thought the First Amendment was important, that to me bespeaks a lack of seriousness uh, that you're going to treat this issue with nuance rather than sort of as an ideological soapbox. I guess at the end of the day, what matters more is the reasoning and the conclusion and less the tone. But am I wrong? And let me let me ask you this, Jeff, and also you should give your opinion generally about, about the, the case. Am I wrong to be just deeply annoyed reading this case, even if there are some legitimate points in it? Thanks for having me. And before I start, I should just give the disclaimer that everything I say is only my views and not the Naval Academy or the Defense Department. Uh, and now that said... I agree with you fully about the tone of the opinion without betraying any confidences of the two judges for whom I clerked. I will just say that had I tried to put any of that into an opinion, I'm pretty sure I would have gotten a lot of red ink back and perhaps a concerned conversation about what are you doing. Um, but I understand the temptation to do that. I tend to do that when I write, but I'm not writing judicial opinions. So Perhaps that's more of an excuse. Uh, On the substance, I agree with Derek. I might uh, be a little less optimistic about the Fifth Circuit's rationality, but uh, and I'm a little concerned about what the Fifth Circuit might do if it might actually even expand upon it. But I I think that my my reading of the opinion, I'd been following this case and all of the documents. The attorneys general had been releasing a lot of the materials that they'd been gathering through discovery, through the early discovery process. So I wasn't terribly surprised to see the factual recitation because I'd seen a lot of it already been released. Uh, But I will say it's actually pretty powerful 
evidence of, you know, the administration really, I think, was overly aggressive. I would agree with Derek there. I think the behavior was entirely inappropriate. And whether this fits within First Amendment jawboning or not, I think from a normative perspective, the government should not be doing what it did. Um, I, I think, I mean, you can do a control F in the opinion for the F-bomb and you will find it because you had a White House staffer whose title was digital director, which until this case, I would have thought is like the web designer, but he's bullying around all the social media companies uh, saying, I want an answer on what happened. What are you talking about? Uh, and I don't know if this is sort of a junior staffer who has a bit of uh, an inflated ego and sense of superiority, or if he really had authority over this. But I'm not comfortable living in a society where the White House and other top officials are really bullying. And I think, you know, the I, I think the strongest potential case for jawboning is the are the sort of the juxtaposition of complaining about constitutionally protected speech and then complaining about Section 230 right after each other. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be an explicit threat. Like if you don't re remove this information about COVID, we will get rid of Section 230. But the implication is there. And I, there were actually other examples that didn't even make the opinion that I think were even stronger. Um, I think, and it's hard. I mean, I, I think members of Congress have been doing this for the past four years with Section 230. They've been using it to pressure platforms both to keep speech up and to take speech down. I think probably, and I apologize, Alan, for my attack on one of your senators from Minnesota, but uh, I think Senator Klobuchar's and Senator Lujan's Health Misinformation Act, they introduced that in 2021, and it basically would remove Section 230 protection for certain uh, health misinformation that was algorithmically promoted. What's the definition of health misinformation? That is fully defined by the HHS secretary. Now, what's notable about this is just a few months earlier, these two same senators had sent a letter to the top social media companies naming 12 disseminators of COVID misinformation and saying that they should be banned. You know, I does that constitute a First Amendment violation I, when it's two out of 100 senators? I think it's an interesting legal question. Should they be doing it? I think absolutely not. So I think this has drawn a lot of attention to some behavior that I think we really do need to address. So let, let's turn to the to the conduct at issue, because I, I think it's actually really important to be clear about what here is problematic from either a legal or a normative perspective. So you, you read the opinion, and, and the opinion I mean, is an extremely long recitation of facts, but you know it's still useful. Um, but one thing that I, at least I found notable was that, you know, Something like 95%, and I, I'm not saying that figure figuratively, I think maybe literally 95% or more of the conduct that is called out in the opinion is White House staffer communications with tech companies at what we might say a, a variety of levels of snippiness from, hey, this isn't great. Can we talk about it? To Jeff, as you pointed out, a bunch of F-bombs, what is going on? Fix this right now. In addition, you have a, a very small number of cases in which actual punitive measures seem to be floated, never with sort of super clear causation, but maybe clear enough. So you have an instance of, well, maybe we should rethink 230. Maybe there's some antitrust issues here. And so I, I want to get your opinion both of you on what is the relationship between those two issues? You know, if it was just the mass of angry White House emails to what are, let's be real, the literally biggest companies in the world, would that be such a problem? Or is it the combination of those with the sort of occasional to, you know, claims about or, or threats about 230 and antitrust? And, and if so, how do you really prove the kind of causation between those? So actually, let me, let me go back to you, Jeff, uh, and then um, we'll, we'll hear Derek's thoughts. Yeah. So I, I think that 
what actually was the most problematic for me was the pressure coming from the White House. And the reason for that is just that the White House is the head of the executive branch of the government. And even when you're not tying it to a specific threat, I mean, this is the person who appoints the people who run the regulatory agencies, who signs bills into law, who proposes a budget. And when you have someone whose email address has a White House signature in it, from their White House email, emailing executives at social media companies saying, hey, you know, this constitutionally protected speech, you've got to get rid of it. That concerns me more than the Surgeon General who... Well, that's still concerning that it's the Surgeon General. And I, I don't know exactly what enforcement power the Surgeon General has over anything. So I think a lot of the definition of jawboning still has to be developed through a lot of cases because we don't, I mean, we have Bantam Books, we have Bloom, we have, it's not one-on-one -on -one applicable to this behavior. And it very well might not reach those levels. This judge said that it did, but I don't think he really showed his work as much as I would have liked. But I, I also think that when when you're looking at should the government be doing this, it's like, you, you know, I think there there are two arguments. First, you would say, well, you know, what, what if someone were sending out mass social media posts saying the election is going to be on Wednesday? Should the government be able to point out to Facebook and Twitter and all the other platforms, hey, you know, the election's not on Wednesday, maybe you should get rid of it. And I think the, there's an argument that the government should be able to do that. But then it gets trickier when it's like, well, what about questions about the efficacy of masks or the vaccines? That That's where, I mean, when you think about what was known about COVID at the beginning of the pandemic versus what we know now, whether masks, vaccines, the lab leak theory, all this sort of stuff, there was stuff that was clearly considered misinformation by the experts that some of it is not, some of it still is, but do we want the government to basically be able to play a role in chilling that debate? And that that's an important question, I think. I guess that what I would say is uh, a few things. One is that I, the sort of mass of facts and of examples, to my mind, actually strongly weakens or detracts from the the sort of force of the case because there's just so much there and as you said Alan I think that you know 96% of it falls in the category of potentially obnoxious but I think just not legally cognizable and administrations complain all the time they complain about the media all the time and to the media all the time that is just life and so I think that one kind of useful, interesting kind of mental exercise is to think about, let's assume that it's actually not a junior staffer who is phoning up various people at Facebook or Twitter, but instead what it is, is Biden gets up every day and says exactly the same things at a White House press conference. The idea that a judge would enjoin that in this sort of mine run of things even that are cited, um, I think is, is extraordinary, like uh, unprecedented in some ways. The pieces that I think are, are twofold that worry me are, um, one, we might be just a little bit worried, and rightly so, about the fact that a, a sort of administration whisper is louder than a shout from everyone else. Although, as Jeff rightly points out, there's been a lot of shouting about Section 230, which kind of shows up in the opinion in a slightly strange way. The second, of course, is the moment that it's combined with some sort of threat that I think becomes much more of a worry. And the opinion at least tries rather feebly to grapple with one of the core problems. Um, and this is, again, where I think just the sort of in, undifferentiated mass of things makes a big difference, is that when the administration starts talking about the possibility of increasing antitrust scrutiny, that's a very real threat because the FTC has extraordinary discretion to do so. Very few antitrust cases go to trial, but antitrust cases are notorious for hobbling tech companies, right? So this happened to IBM with sort of mainframes. It certainly happened to Microsoft with the integration of Internet Explorer into Windows. It's enough of a sort of drag to slow down a tech company. So that's a very real threat. And it is plainly combined with a request slash demand to take down certain content. The, the sort of other thing that I would say is that the, the opinion kind of talks about, well, you know, this, it, it's very worrisome because this seems like it's all taking down conservative speech. 
And um, that seems like a bit of a tell for where the judge's priors are. But I think that it is a much easier case to say, well, if it turns out that uh, certain Republicans were saying, like, as for, in Jeff's example, which is strictly hypothetical, like, oh, the election has been moved Wednesday. That's one thing. Uh, harder case for some of the contested scientific questions. The part that sort of read to me as as really troubling was the Hunter Biden laptop bits, because that's just not, I mean, that's strictly of concern to basically like the Biden family and no one else. I will say that where I, I think that some of the, the difficult and careful work needs to be done doctrinally and both in, in sort of weaving the facts together is to think about how serious the threat is. Because you know, even Senator Klobuchar, that bill really just didn't have a lot of odds of becoming law. Uh, on the other hand, something like the use of the FTC or an executive branch agency that takes its orders from the president um, can be deployed relatively quickly. And at some level, it's interesting because the point that Jeff made about bipartisan critiques of Section 230 actually, I think, runs against the point that the court is trying to make. As he says, oh, well, it's much more threatening, right? Because you have this pressure from this Democratic administration, and also it's bipartisan pressure on 230 which skips over the fact entirely that 230 is a little like everybody hates the weather. No one does anything about it. The two parties want extraordinarily different things uh, in terms of Section 230 reform. So everybody hates it, but absolutely no one can agree on what to be done about it, uh, what should be done about it. And I think that that means that it was uh, much less likely to be a threat in this particular instance. So, but the, just to come back to one sort of final bit that you asked, Alan, which is the tone is like a bad high school paper, right? Is that you've got this sort of set of string sites about, you know, the, the sort of like greatness of speech and so forth. Like somebody, you know, clearly his, his clerks are familiar with Wikipedia and it's just, it's I not- that or chat GPT. That's right. You don't need as many clerks these days. And to be honest, it does exactly the opposite. I think what the court intended, the court intends it to sort of heighten the importance of things. And it just makes it look very slightly sophomoric, which is, look, when you're dealing with something as serious as the first amendment, and at least the sort of range of offenses, and it says like, these are among those serious, you know, this, this is probably the worst first amendment thing that's ever happened in the country's history, which is quite a claim considering the sort of alien and sedition acts. And then you sort of muck it up with like just sort of string sites from your favorite historical figures. It just makes it seem less serious. Just sort of um, get down to the heart of things. And and as you say, too, the the CDC are not scary people, right? Like, I don't, I'm not worried that the CDC is going to show up with guns. Um, it would be a much better case if the FBI stuff seemed, seemed more threatening. So I think that although jawboning is nuanced, the court actually, by including more draws away from the force of the pieces of it that I do think are actually quite troubling normatively. And that, at least in my opinion, ought to be doctrinally questionable. So I, I want to pull on one thread in in what you just said, Derek. And, and that is this point that I found quite jarring, frankly, when the judge says that, well, notice that all of the speech censored was conservative speech. And it's not actually clear what the implication of that is. The judge never draws it out. But there's this very ominous kind of ellipsis kind of effect there. And, you know, one question we might ask is, why does this matter? Like, what, what is the relevance of this, of this point? But the other question, I think the, the more interesting one, perhaps, is, is this conservative speech that is being censored? Or is this just crazy speech that is being censored? And what I mean about is this. It'd be a weird admission to say that saying things like, you know, these vaccines cause autism and they're implanting microchips and you should use bleach and Invermectin is conservative speech. It's crazy speech. Um, now, it happens to be because of the messed up dynamics of our political system and our media ecosystem, what you hear from a lot of conservatives. Though, of course, these days you also hear it from people like RFK Jr., who is after Biden, you know, the the most popular presidential Democratic nominee, which is a whole different kettle of awkward fish for the Republic. And and the reason I ask this, uh, and I'll, I'll ask, I'm going to ask actually you, you Jeff, to, to comment first is, is there a way to be a little more nuanced in what kind of content we're talking about, right? So, so, you know, claims that 
you know, the, the vaccines cause autism or whatever the heck those weird claims about the vaccines were, right, are, are just somehow categorically different and therefore deserving of less First Amendment protection than, you know, d- debates about whether we should have opened the schools or debates uh, over, you know, whether DeSantis's policy in Florida was all else being equal correct or whether the lab leak claim, right, was, was correct. Um, obviously, you know, there's this question of, well, who decides and all that sort of stuff. But you know, at some point, don't we as a society need to be able to say, no, some claims are just crazy. Um, and if we can't say that, then we have lost the epistemic foundations necessary for the thin veneer of collective truth that is necessary for functioning society. So yeah, and this um, I, I guess with good timing, I have a book coming out this fall that makes the case for First Amendment protections for a lot of crazy speech. And I think there is a whole lot of crazy speech that we can rightly call crazy. Whether it is First Amendment protected is a different story. And I think we need to be careful about lumping in crazy speech with speech that does not get protected by the First Amendment. And in my book, I lay out the various reasons why we protect a lot of crazy false speech. I mean, we we generally assume that the marketplace of ideas, while far from perfect, is a better test of truth than uh, letting the government uh, determine one one absolute truth. Also, that there's a lot of stuff that might seem crazy that at point A and still at point B, it is cra- it seems crazy. But there's also some speech that could seem crazy at point A that's a little less crazy at point B, such as the lab leak theory, which I think there's still debate about. But I think when you think about how it was considered in 2020 versus now, there's been more discussion here and the government was not able to freeze that from happening. And, and I also think that one often overlooked reason for not automatically censoring the speech is that it actually will reduce trust in the truth. If the government is able to say, you can't talk about this because it's crazy, that can actually fuel some more conspiracy theories. So there's a lot of reasons why, yes, there is crazy speech, but there, but we we can call it out as crazy. And I think that there's also for COVID, I think is a great example where I I think we're continuing to learn more about it. And the government wasn't able to say, you can't say certain things. I mean, I I'd give one example of the New York times coverage of this court opinion where it said, um, I'll read it. It's being overseen by Judge Terry Doughty, who was appointed by President Donald J. Trump and has previously expressed little skepticism about debunked claims from vaccine skeptics. In one previous case, Judge Doughty accepted as fact the claim that COVID-19 vaccines do not prevent the transmission of the disease. Now, I can say as someone who has been vaccinated and boosted and had COVID last week, that no, COVID vaccines do not always prevent the transmission of the disease. They're, they have benefits, but I, I think that, but the New York Times was basically saying this is misinformation. And I, so I think it's really dangerous to say this is misinformation and the debate has to stop. I, I think that does not accomplish any goals. And that actually can make these, this craziness even worse. I guess I would say three things, and um, I'd also like to to plug Jeff's book because uh, all of Jeff's books are great. None of them will ever eclipse the twenty six words that created the internet, but nonetheless, um, they're they're always good to read. I would say that there are three important things. The first is that I'm not sure that this is per se conservative speech. I think that the really unfortunate thing was that the Trump administration decided to politicize COVID. And so that, that for whatever reason, just caught, right? And so it means that anything that is skeptical about COVID is much more likely to come from the right side of the political aisle versus the left, because that was just the partisan divide that we have. And so when one side takes something up, the other side is, is against it. And, you know, RFK Jr. is a wonderful example of somebody who has just an incredible range of lunatic theories um, and I would not want him suppressed. I also would not want him to be the, the nominee, although I have no great fears on that point. The second is that there's there's a really strong assumption, I think, on both sides of the aisle, but the Biden administration demonstrates it here, 
in a way that I think that perhaps their their pressure on the platforms is an overreaction, which is there's an assumption that bad information causes a belief. That in other words, the it is in essence a marketplace, which is that you have these sort of facts floating out there. The fact that a given social uh, network's algorithm promotes those facts means that people are more likely to read them and believe them. And as I've worked more and more on misinformation, I'm increasingly convinced that the causal effect runs the other way, which is that we tend to seek out information that confirms our normative priors. And so at that level, there is still the difficulty, right, of some echo chamber effect, but it's not like there are a bunch of minds to be changed out there. A lot of people have already at least made up their mind in terms of at least their political views, and then that translates into the set of facts that they're willing to accept. And in terms of what's crazy, I think that a sort of deep problem politically is that we have to to sort of really get geeky here. We have something of an epistemological crisis or a grave epistemological difference. We no longer agree. We no longer have a formed consensus on who is an expert and who is to be listened to. And so there are people who would much rather take their vaccine uh, advice from Joe Rogan versus Anthony Fauci. Fauci is by no means perfect. There were times where he was wrong and there are times when he, uh, you know, concealed or misstated information. But if you, you know, if you had to bet the lives of your kids, you'd follow his advice rather than Rogan's. But with that said, that's my particular perspective as kind of somebody who's part of the educated class and professor and whatnot. There are plenty of people who hold absolutely the opposite point of view. And so what counts as crazy depends on who you think is an authority and uh, particularly in the age of kind of the democratization of information distribution, we just really no longer believe in, uh, we no longer have this sort of felt consensus of who is the expert. And so that and the sort of uh, attraction or causality points, unfortunately, run together in a way that I think is, is an important and uh, underdiscussed dynamic here. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I do want to spend some time on the actual sort of legal questions here, right? E- even if the judge did not do a great job of, of showing his work, we can at least try to sort of steel man the opinion a little bit and, and see what we can get. It strikes me that there are two ways of trying to figure out whether some set of government conduct should count as impermissible job owning under the First Amendment. Now, what the remedy is, is a separate question, which I'll ask in a little bit, but just to see if there's a First Amendment violation. And one way to think about it, I think, is to use the sort of standard idea of rules versus standards that, you know, either you can come up with a a fairly rigid kind of bright line test for such and such conduct is permissible, such and such conduct is not permissible, and that's just what we're going to do, or one of these more mushy, you know, 17 factor standards. And the way I read the opinion, it's much more the latter than the former, the, the judge throws kind of a bunch of stuff at the wall, right? You have a ton of these comments and interactions. Plus, he sort of sprinkles in some more egregious, I think we're all agreeing, comments about Section 230 and, and, and antitrust enforcement, plus some stuff about conservative speech. And there's kind of a, I know it when I see it, this is bad, this is jawboning, this is a violation of the First Amendment. So that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it would be, to say, okay, some things are just allowed and some things are not allowed. And I don't want to put words in your in your mouth, but you know, one 
sensible or at least one simple way of doing it would be to say, look, if it's just angry emails from the White House, that's just allowed because there's just no way that we can police that line. The moment you start talking about Section 230 and antitrust, you went too far. That was a mistake, right? We're going to hold you to that. And so, you know, tell your staffers not to say stupid stuff like that. Either as a matter of what the right answer is given past doctrine or what you just think the right answer should be going forward. And I'm kind of more interested in the latter question because I suspect that the doctrine, even as it exists, is, is just, it's sort of like too hard to parse, frankly, for these new situations. What do you think is the, is the appropriate method here? A, a bright line, here's what's allowed, here's what's not allowed, and we're just not going to worry about the nuances? Or one of these, look, we're just going to take every case as, it, as itself, we're going to look at it and our spidey sense will tell us if this is good or bad jawboning. I'd like a bright line, but I don't know how useful that would be for the future. I, I think that, I mean, when you look at the past cases, I mean, you're dealing with like the Rhode Island Commission on Morality in a 19, I think 1964 case sending letters to book distributors. That's not terribly useful to apply as a bright line test for what the White House and the Surgeon General did. In this case, so I think that you're going to have to have some sort of standard with different factors, unfortunately, for a constitutional test. What I'd like to see that combined with, though, and, and I, I think, and I mean, I'm, my experience as a former journalist is I'm well aware of members of Congress and agencies calling up to me and my editors to complain about what I've written. And that, I mean, that that was just like part of life. And I never said this was a First Amendment violation, but it was annoying. Uh, this is a little different when, especially when you're coupling it with 230 and antitrust. What I think actually is probably going to be more useful than a court standard will be a statute that clearly defines behavior that's permissible and impermissible based on position, capacity, and so forth. There has been a proposal already. I, I think it's a good starting point for discussion. I'd like to see Congress be able to define what the role of government is in all of this, because ultimately that helps make the democratic process accountable. Um, this, this judgment, I think, is not the best way to go about it. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about the scope and so forth, but I mean, the way that this reads, it prohibits government employees at large agencies throughout the government in their personal capacities interacting with social media, like a GS5 at DHS not being able to complain about something they see when they're at home on social media. That's crazy. And that's a First Amendment issue in itself. But but yeah, so I, I think ultimately this is going to have to be something Congress addresses. Jeff's idea of a statute is a really interesting one. Um, and at some level, that might even pose some relatively novel First Amendment problems in itself, which is to what degree does the government is the government enabled to prevent itself from speaking? And um, and one of the things I just want to give a shout out to here is um, Helen Norton's work on government speech, particularly government lies, is really excellent in this area and, and I would recommend as a read. And I, I think that there are probably two problems here, one of which is, is less discussed. Uh, the, the First Amendment one is I, I think that there are probably some things that if we had a reasonable set of people sit down, we could agree uh, constitute uh, First Amendment violations. And I suspect strongly those are ones where it really does look like state action, right? So the kind of classic thing would be you file an antitrust case against Facebook when Facebook doesn't take down content. Well, that's fine. But speech, right, just suasive speech like Facebook ought to do something about this bad content really, I think, doesn't count as state action. And so the state action barriers with so many other things in the First Amendment is really important. And the, the opinion just skates past it. And it skates past it in a way that I find particularly annoying because it cites some language from an older case talking about, well, when the, when the government encourages private speech, that's not really the law today. That's a much older case because the government encourages speech all the time. It discourages speech all the time. The government gets to speak too. So I think that state action will do some of the work. And it seems like the sort of thing where we might be able to combine a test that is, you know, kind of the standard multi-factor, context-sensitive, uh, with 
a few instances, right, where like, okay, these are the sort of clear exemplars of bad practices. If it doesn't fall within that zone of sort of easy cases, then we have to sort of do the work and, and sort of march through in a much more careful fashion. The second possibility, things like the unconstitutional conditions doctrine, which is sort of, you know, a mystery wrapped in an enigma to borrow from Churchill and has, has kind of always been a mess but which to my mind is is sort of underutilized because it is thinking exactly about this problem, which is at what point does government pressure become impermissible coercion? The case law can't be lined up in any meaningful fashion. And, and, and those who've tried, it's mostly um, led to madness. But as a project, it is in some ways cleaner than I think the First Amendment. And so that actually is an area where if to the degree that we are picking and choosing our kind of uh, doctrinal levers, that's one that I think deserves some, some serious consideration. So l- let's turn to the to the remedy, which we have not talked about yet, which is the, the injunction, right? There's a specific order um, which enjoins a ton of people in the government from talking to a ton of social media platforms. Um, and then there's the opinion. So I have two questions for both of you with regards to the order. And the first, and this is something that both of you have touched on a little bit, is the order restricts not just sort of the government in some abstract sense, it restricts a lot of specific people from themselves doing a lot of speech. Now, of course, the government has its own speech rights and individuals in the government have their own speech rights. So in a sense, this court is saying to protect one set of First Amendment rights, we're going to restrict the first one rights of another set of actors. Now, to its credit, the judge does at least very briefly point out that this is not a contradiction because government speech does not go so far as speech that itself censors other people's speech. That's not what's permissible here. But given how broad the order is, isn't this at some point just trenching on a lot of other people's First Amendment speech? And does it go, let's put it this way, does it go farther than it needs to in order to achieve its objectives? Uh, Jeff, what do you think? So uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I think the biggest issue is the lack of specificity in the order. So for some of the agencies, they just say the agency themselves, and then the judge lists some particular employees who have been at issue in the litigation. Uh, But then for other agencies like DHS, they will say they will include their secretary, director, administrators, and employees. And, and so that's everyone at the DOJ. Every, I mean, so someone who might be a file clerk at DOJ is being enjoined in both their official and personal capacity. Uh, there's a footnote at the beginning of the injunction that says all individuals named in this judgment are being sued in their official capacities. But for me, that that doesn't mean that the injunction only applies to their behavior in their official capacities. You might be able to read it that way, but I also would not want to take the risk of having a narrow reading of a federal judge's injunction. So what that would mean to me is they they can't communicate at home or at work with social media companies if that communication is covered by this order. And I I think that's far too broad. And I think that almost certainly raises First Amendment issues. The government uh, has asked for a stay of the preliminary injunction while it uh, while it appeals and pointed out just, you know, we don't know exactly how we could comply with this. And I I'm a little concerned because, again, as I'd mentioned earlier, I'm not terribly convinced that we're going to get a panel on the Fifth Circuit that will acknowledge this ambiguity. So I don't know if this is something that has to wait to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. I do think the Supreme Court would at least want to take a narrower construction of this, but that's going to be a while. So I I think this is really going to cause some disruptions in the meantime. Oh, the irony. The the injunction itself is jawboning. Because as Jeff points out, it's there's I, I don't think that there's any possibility that a court can enjoin me in my private capacity as a hypothetical employee of DHS from going home and complaining to the neighbors about Facebook or even calling up Facebook to tell them they're doing a terrible job or my account is frozen or whatnot. But it is the threat, right? It's that overhang that even if there were a narrowing construction that you just don't know. 
And so this too is like this jawboning on all sides here, which makes it, it makes it remarkable. But it strikes me as, as an example of an extraordinarily overbroad, just literally impermissibly overbroad injunction that I think won't survive. And, and, um, I don't wish to sound optimistic about the the Fifth Circuit, given the kind of um, you know internet censorship cases that it's been dealing with. But uh, the Supreme Court, I think, is very unlikely to be comfortable with this is something that you know effectively, at some level, is not only an extraordinary restriction on government speech and on individual speech, but also runs some real risk of crippling the administrative state. And so I, I think that that it's you know, we're sort of attuned to the idea that prior restraints are strongly disfavored. And here we have not just a prior restraint, but a really big prior restraint. And so I think that especially in combination with what seems to me a quite weak case on the merits, the idea that it's just every agency that's complained about can't have contact with the tech companies is is really kind of astonishing. And I do think that Ellen, you raised a point earlier about what is the correct remedy. And that's very difficult after the fact, right? Because at some level, if you've had enough threats up to a certain point in time, and then the answer is, oh, an injun- a narrow injunction issue is that you can't make any more threats, right? There's always a sort of wink and a nod. And so I think this is one of those ones, and there's a, a, a good paper recently on the inefficacy of many First Amendment remedies. And I apologize, I can't remember who the authors are, even though I've, I've downloaded it. And it's, it's a conundrum because we don't like the idea of forward-looking relief. And there's no easy way to think about things like compensation for, for past harms. And so I think that that remains a puzzle. The one thing I will say is this is a case study in how not to do it. One additional question I have about the remedy is almost a reading comprehension question which is, what does it actually apply to? Which is to say, I'm not sure I understand the scope of the injunction. So I think it's useful here to actually read two parts of the injunction. And then maybe you two can explain to me how these fit, because for the life of me, I can't figure it out. So in one section of the injunction, it says that the government cannot uh, you know, specifically flag content or posts on social media platforms you know, blah, 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 to urge, encourage, pressure, or induce in any matter for removal, deletion, blah, 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 content containing protected free speech. Okay, that seems super broad. That might be problematic, but I think I think I know what that means. And then a few paragraphs down, it says, but there's an exception. The government can inform social media companies of threats that threaten the public safety or security of the United States. Now, the last time I checked, there are plenty of things that threaten the public safety or security of the United States that are 100% First Amendment protected, you know, CEG Brandenburg versus Ohio. So I'm not even sure what this injunction means. And I, I wonder if this is the, the judge like kind of admitting, I'm sure not intentionally, that he actually himself doesn't know what he thinks about jawboning. Because of course, like this is just exactly, you know, if, if the, if the, if the, you know, tables were turned. This is like exactly what you would expect a Republican White House to do and a bunch of lefty Democrats to complain about. And so this just makes me sort of wonder if this is just bad faith on all sides. And really, it's not It's not about jawboning. It's about jawboning the stuff that I like and that you don't like. I mean, is there any way to harmonize this injunction? I feel, I feel legitimately bad for the DOJ lawyers who have to figure out what guidance to give agencies. Are you suggesting this might be a content-based restriction on speech? <laughs> oh uh, this is this is like the uh, this is like the serpent eating its own tail. This opinion. Yes. So I mean, I, I obviously I there is some speech within the exceptions that is not constitutionally protected, but there's a whole lot of speech that is constitutionally protected within the exceptions, and he's just kind of making these judgments based on, you know, this I think is acceptable, even if it's constitutionally protected, but this isn't. And it's unclear how he's getting to those points and how that would ever satisfy for that alone would satisfy First Amendment review. Um, My experience over the years with the government, even just with exception two, which is national security threats, is that the government says everything's a national security threat. So really the vast majority, they could say COVID is a national security threat. So if we see something that 
disagrees with the government's position on COVID, that's a national security threat. So, so I also think, though, in practice, and obviously, I don't know how DOJ is going to be interpreting this, I would probably take a very narrow view if I were a lawyer at one of these agencies to not have to then litigate whether this behavior is falling within exceptions. And what we've seen so far, at least based on media reporting, is that there have been some meetings that I think it was the State Department regularly has with social media companies that have been canceled because they're going to err on the side of caution. But yeah, I, I don't know. There's not sort of a bright line way to comply with with this with, with this injunction and know for a fact that you're complying with it. I, I think the difficulty is, as Jeff articulates, it's an I know it when I see it standard in terms of the judge, right? And so that means that you at the government sort of operate at your peril. By the same token, there's historically been extraordinary deference to the executive branch in particular over things that constitute national security threats. And uh, COVID seemed pretty plainly a national security threat, especially if you buy the lab leak theory, right? Then it's it's possible that this is something that was you know potentially being developed as a bioweapon. The other obvious point is election meddling, right? Election misinformation has to be, I think, viewed as a national security threat of some form. I am skeptical of the idea that election misinformation swung the 2016 election. I think that that is um, a, a bit of sort of Monday morning quarterbacking on the part of, of Democrats. But it's it's hard to think of perhaps anything other than sort of literal weapons information that would constitute more of a national security threat than a, a foreign nation state attempting to influence who our next, uh, who constitutes our next government. And so it's it, it sort of the the order gives with one hand and takes with the other. But I also think it is essentially an open invitation for this judge to say, you actually got it wrong. Sorry, in my view, you didn't get it quite right. And normally this is the sort of thing that conservative of the small C courts don't do. They're actually really quite concerned about the ability to you know, comply with injunctive relief. It shows up even in in weird cases like, you know, the uh, the 11th Circuit case about cybersecurity and the FTC and the 11th Circuit just says, well, look, we can't figure out what this injunction means. Neither can anyone else and hence it's void. And so here, I think that the same thing applies and it's in an even more delicate area, which is speech where we're really concerned about prior restraint. So, so I think that there's no easy way to figure out exactly what this means. But I, Alan, I think that your point is correct, which is that everyone is likely to get risk averse because we just don't want to keep getting hauled back in front of this judge for sort of like, you know, kind of um, tertiary litigation over it. I want to finish our discussion by moving away from this opinion and this judge and the courts in general, because I, I think there's, I, I, I suspect we all agree that judges making this up, even if they're, even if they do a better job than this judge is just not going to be the way that we come up with a, a process for this. So in the alternative, Obviously, the executive branch, the White House, could promulgate some rules, some procedures for how to do this, this being communicate with platforms in an appropriate and First Amendment sensitive way. And if the White House doesn't or not to Congress's satisfaction, Congress could legislate on this or at least hold hearings and try to pressure. And so I'd like to ask you both about what you think a good regime would, would look like. Um, you know, is it is it a matter of substantive limitations on what the executive branch can do? Is it a matter of procedural limitations uh, or, or transparency requirements? And, and also, you know, how do we think about the second order consequences? So, so the, the economist Tyler Cowen had a really interesting uh, post on, on his blog, Marginal Revolution, a few days after the opinion. And it, this is, you know, I think why having economists weigh in on this is helpful because he sort of spun out the, the game theory of this. And he pointed out that, look, if you completely eliminate the ability of the government to talk to social media about this. You're not getting rid of the jawboning concern because social media companies recognize that they can still anger the government. You're just getting rid of a channel by which the government can explain to social media companies what they want. You get rid of that channel. It's actually not obvious that what you'll end up with is less censorship. You might end up with more censorship if the companies knowing that at any moment Congress or the executive branch can mess with 230 or antitrust or whatever, those companies could get even more paranoid. And now they don't even have a way of talking to the people that they know ultimately rule their lives. Now, I'm not saying that that's 
the right analysis or, or that's the dynamic that wins out in the end. But this does just strike me just in this sort of a game theoretic sense, an incredibly difficult problem to solve, you know, even if the White House and Congress uh, decide that they want to seize themselves of this issue. Yeah. So, I mean, I you, you hit on what I think is the most important value in all of this, where I think the Biden administration has really been lacking, which is transparency. And not just for these examples, but throughout the administration, there have been efforts to deal with misinformation and disinformation that I think their biggest flaws have been their lack of transparency. They've been convoluted. I would say the disinformation governance board is probably the worst effort that that I've seen in the United States where their, their naming is not great. Their naming isn't great. Their attempts to explain it over like two weeks. And I, I mean, I didn't see any evidence this was going to be this big censorship regime. I don't think it was competent enough to be this big censorship regime, regime, but there was no evidence that it wasn't. And for the, I mean, it was a good case study in misinformation because while they were sort of bungling and trying to come up with fact sheets about operators and so forth, the, there were all these conspiracy theories developing. And I, I think that's really emblematic of the lack of transparency. And I think when you look at this case, uh, the fact that you have this person, again, not to harp on the White House digital director, but I will harp on the White House digital director, who I don't know who he is. I don't know what his qualifications or responsibilities are, but to be like having these back channels with social media companies and yelling at them about stuff, I, I, I think that if the contacts were more public and clear. Um, I, I think probably the best example actually started at DHS under uh, Chris Krebs in the Trump administration, uh, which was rumor control, where there was all this misinformation about the elections being rigged leading up to the election. And what DHS did is they put on a public facing website, you know, the myth that something's wrong with the voting machines. And they put source documents where they linked and said, okay, you could read read about the voting machines, read about how they're inspected, how they're audited and so forth. That's the type of thing we need to have where, yes, the government can work on misinformation, but don't make it this weird backroom dealing that's going to eventually come out in litigation because I, I don't think that's terribly effective. It's an extraordinarily hard problem. Um, it's a hard problem because uh, the sort of Sharp degree of political partisanship means that we build the regime. Uh, I'm likely to build a regime that helps my side. And then I'm really likely to dislike that regime when I'm out of power is that nobody is sort of thinking four years from now. I guess uh, transparency is, is outstanding. It requires having people like journalists and civil society organizations who are dedicated to that. And that's increasingly difficult just in this, this media environment, especially one of concentration um, in, in certain ways. I think that the piece that's lacking that I would like to see instantiated is first that we we actually do the hard work of articulating some norms. What to us seems like a permissible mechanism for conversation between administration and a set of private companies. The private companies could see semiconductor chip makers, but it's even more important when they're companies that distribute information. And then I think that the right answer is an executive order. And the executive order could set out like, well, look, there's a set of people who can have contact, right, who have to be a certain level or above. There has to be some level of documentation for potential auditing. And perhaps that's protected from Freedom of Information Act inquiries or perhaps not. But what that does is it allows some flexibility. It doesn't lock future administrations in, but it does hold future administrations' feet to the fire and that if all of a sudden they just discard the previous executive order and put in place something totally different, then we have a very strong signal, at least, that either they have totally different normative priors or they're just putting in place one that serves them better than they thought the prior regime did. And that would be especially true if we have managed to articulate some sort of broad consensus about the way in which these informal conversations ought to be taking place. But I think that attempts to do it by statute and certainly attempts to do it through one judge in Louisiana with a nationwide injunction. Neither of those is is appealing, at least under the current, current circumstances. And in the end, for me, this is the really hard part about job owning is that I think the problem is really increasingly prevalent, but it is tremendously thorny to try to solve. 
Well, I think that is a, a good, if sobering place to leave this conversation. Uh, Jeff, Derek, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,